messages called Restoration, where we're talking about not just the church in general, but we're talking about this particular church. What is our unique calling? How is God calling us to live out the gospel in our moment in time? And there was a group of people on your behalf who spent the better part of a year arguing, praying, discussing, excavating, trying to uncover the identity of Peachtree and to have that lean forward into what we think is God's preferred and glorious future for us as the church. And so we first started that question as what are we ultimately doing? It's that why do we exist question, kind of that question zero. It's a mission-related question. And you heard me say, I don't really care if we have a mission statement, but I care deeply about whether or not we have a mission. But it's really hard to have a mission without stating your mission. And so here's what it is. Joining Christ daily in the restoration of all things. Why don't you say that with me? Joining Christ daily in the restoration of all things. So we talked about how we're called not just to make bricks or to build walls, but to construct beautiful cathedrals. And that that's what a mission does. It ultimately tells us how we can raise our sights and figure out how God wants us to pull together to do something great, something grand. And that it's so much more than just regular work. It's something that extends to generations to come. But if, even if a lot of us in this world have the same mission, if we all felt called to build cathedrals, those cathedrals might look vastly different from one another depending on what the values, the particular DNA, passions, motives that we all bring to that. And so we talk about how you might be in a similar business or mission, and yet it might be vastly different. What does Peachtree do that's different from 10,000 other churches? Well, it's the unique combination of these three of our highest values. We've named these as our priorities, our motives in ministry, unexpected togetherness, gentle reverence, and disruptive compassion. And last week, we unpacked unexpected togetherness. We talked about how in today's day and age, there's a lot of um, segregation on the base of age in particular, that while racial Tensions in America over the last 200 years have trended in the right direction. When you look at the ghettoization based on your generation, that that's actually trending in the wrong direction and has been for a while for the last 50 years or so. And how the gospel brings unlikely people from unlikely, unlikely different places and particularly unlikely generations together. That Peachtree is a wonderful place where our average age is 37, 10% under the age of 10, 10% over the age of 70. We won't ask you to raise your hand if you're in either one of those demographics. And what we do is that God calls us together into this unique and unlikely fellowship called unexpected togetherness. This week, we're going to talk about that second value, gentle reverence. And while those first and third terms of unexpected togetherness and disruptive compassion, those are terms that are a little distinct, but they're not as strange as this phrase, gentle reverence. Where does that come from, and what on earth does that mean? Well, I'm glad you asked. We're going to talk about where it comes from. It comes from a verse in 1 Peter 3 that says this, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who calls you to account for the hope that is in you, and yet do it with gentleness and reverence. This is the old RSV translation that I was uh, reared on, and I love that phrase of that combination of gentleness and reverence being fused together 
in the way that we're called to live out the gospel in our moment in time. A unique phrase, to be sure, but what does it really look like? The best way to be able to unpack that is with a story. It's a biblical story. It comes from John chapter 8, but instead of having you read it, I'd love to retell it for you to see if we can have this story leap off of the pages and into our lives. It's early one morning, and in the outer courtyard of the temple in Jerusalem, there are little pockets of rabbis that are gathering with small groups of people. The businesses are just starting to open up. People are starting to get to work. And as they're getting ready for the day, many of them pull aside in order to learn, to grow, to study, to to pray together. And Jesus is with one of those small groups of people. It's a peaceful, serene time of the day. The sun has just come up, and yet there's this commotion that starts to move this way. An angry, small group mob is carrying this woman through the temple gates and throw her down in front of Jesus. You can see that the veins on their foreheads are popping and the anger and the disgust in their faces as they approach Jesus. And they approach Jesus and say, teacher, this woman was just caught in the act of adultery. Now, the Bible uses the term to be caught multiple times there to let you know what had actually happened. For you see, it was actually the kind of thing, adultery was very rare to actually be punishable back in that day and age because you needed not one, but two witnesses. And in addition to that, it couldn't be a witness who said, well, I saw so-and-so coming out of so-and-so's apartment. No, it had to be you actually caught someone in the act with two eyewitnesses. That's the first thing you notice. The second thing you notice is that if this was adultery, wasn't there somebody else who should be there in this moment? Didn't it take two to tango? The man is not there. And we don't know why, but we know it's a double standard because the law of Moses required for both of them to be brought forward with these charges. And yet they bring this woman, but not him. And they say, teacher, this woman was just caught in the act of adultery, and the law of Moses says that we are to stone her. What do you say? They have no regard for the law of Moses. They have no regard for this woman. Those are not their primary concerns. What you see they are trying to do in this moment is they are trying to lay out a trap, and they're trying to snare Jesus in it. They're putting him in a little double bind. Because you see, if Jesus says, you know what, don't worry about it, let her go, Jesus can be painted as somebody who's soft on crime, that he's soft on the law of Moses. But if Jesus says, go ahead and kill her, then Jesus is the kind of person who has this ministry of mercy and compassion that they can paint him in the other extreme. And so they think they've got him. They think they've got him trapped. And yet Jesus does something very odd in this story that we don't, we don't expect. You can, you can see the, the tension building in this story. Jesus, what do you say that we do? What does Jesus do? He bends down on the ground and he starts writing in the dust. And you've got to ask, what is he doing that for? Did Jesus realize that his mother Mary had asked him to pick up a couple of groceries and he wanted to make sure that he wrote down a list before he forgot them because he didn't bring his smartphone? 
Now, we know that Jesus is omniscient, that he's not going to forget something like that. So what is he doing? There's all kinds of different theories, and we don't know 100% for sure, but most of the theories have very little seemingly connection to the truth. Some people think that Jesus was riding in the dirt just to take the attention off of her and to bring it upon him. I don't think that's what's going on in this story. Some people say that Jesus is sitting there and writing all of the sins that all the people there have committed. I don't think there's enough evidence for that. It's always been a mystery to me, and I finally read some research this week that finally made sense to me, and in order to understand it, you have to understand the festivals and what's going on in that moment in time. So this story takes place in John chapter 8, and right before John chapter 8 is John chapter what? That was not a trick question, but only a third of you answered that question. John chapter 7 is, yes, what's right before chapter 8. And in John chapter 7, we learn that it is the festival, the festival of Sukkot or the festival of the tabernacles. It was to recount the festival of what the Israelites were like when they were in the wilderness, that God would provide for them in their manna, but particularly in an arid climate, that God would provide the water of life for them. And so they're in that festival in John chapter 8. That's why Jesus is in Jerusalem, because it's the festival of Sukkot. That's why he's no longer in Galilee, but he's there for this particular gathering and feast time. And that the festival of tabernacles happens right on the heels of the holiest day of the year for the Jews. Just a few days before is the festival of Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. That is the day when the people are collectively forgiven for their sins. And what happens on the Day of Atonement is that one of the cornerstone scriptures that they say year after year after year, it would be like us having Easter but not singing Jesus Christ is risen today, that hymn. It has to be done. I don't sit down with Mary and the music staff and say, should we or should we not sing the hymn Jesus Christ is risen today because there'd be a revolution on behalf of the people if we didn't. Well, there was one scripture that you said, according to custom, every single year at the end of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, as it provides the segue into the Feast of the Tabernacles. It is Jeremiah 17, 13 that says this, those who turn away from you will be written in the what? The dust, because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. What did Jesus say at the end of John chapter 7? He talks about him being that living water and that anyone who is thirsty may come to me. And now at the beginning of John chapter 8, Jesus is riding in the dust. Are you starting to see it? We don't know exactly what he was writing. Was he writing Jeremiah 17, 13? Was he writing their names as Jeremiah 17, 13 said? What we do know is that after Jesus finished writing, whatever he was writing, he stood up and he said, those of you, right? Again, this is right after Yom Kippur, right after their sins have been forgiven. Those of you who were without sin may cast the first stone. And you can imagine that the woman closed her eyes because she doesn't want to see it coming. But all that she hears is the sound of thud, thud, 
thud as all of the stones fall to the ground. And I'd give a thousand sunsets to see what happened next. When Jesus goes over to this woman and he picks her up and he says, woman, where are your accusers? Does no one condemn you? And she looks around in disbelief and says, no one, sir. And then he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. At the beginning of the Gospel of John, it says that Jesus is full of two things, that he is full of both grace and truth, that he holds two things together that don't often go together, that God is fully gracious and that God is fully truthful all at the same time, and that Jesus is the full embodiment and representation of that. And Jesus not only holds those two things together, he gets the order right. What's first? When I first uh, was getting my start in ministry, I was involved in student ministries, and I was invited uh, towards the beginning of the time when I was still in seminary to speak at uh, a Presbyterian retreat center located in beautiful Texas Hill Country, and I was invited to speak to a large group of high school students. And based on the particular theme, one of the scriptures that they had chosen was this John chapter 8 passage that I was supposed to speak on. And after telling and retelling the story and preaching about it, after the service was over, there was this 16-year-old girl that came forward with her eyes full of tears. And all she kept saying as she came forward was, I never knew, I never knew, I never knew. And there was a small group of us there as she came forward to receive her. And we said, what didn't you know? And she said, I never knew that what I had to give was precious. And she said, I never knew that I didn't have to change in order for God to love me. That God loves me first, and that means that I can change. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. The light bulb of the gospel went off for this young girl. And I just want to pause for a moment to have our own little gut check about whether that light bulb, that realization has gone off for you. For you to realize that there's nothing that you can do to make God love you anymore. There's nothing that you can do to make God love you any less. That he loves you just as you are and not as you should be, but he loves you too much for you to stay the way that you are that he is full of both grace and truth. But the grace comes first. Neither do I condemn you comes before go and sin no more. And once you start to realize this pattern of the gospel, you'll start to see it everywhere in Scripture. You'll turn to, for example, Romans chapter 2, where it says God's kindness is intended to lead us to repentance. Notice it's not the other way around. No, it's not that our repentance unlocks God's kindness. No, it's that God's kindness unlocks our repentance. That this is the way that God has constructed reality. That God's kindness unlocks a changed life. 
I love how Barry Corey talks about it. He's the president of Biola University in Southern California. Kelly and I got to know Barry pretty well while we were there in different educational circles. He's written a book called Love Kindness, and he talks about how what the world desperately needs and what the church has so often failed to put forward is the loving kindness of God, what we might call today the gentleness of God. He says most people's experience of Christians today is that we have firm edges and a squishy soft core when in reality God wants the other way around, that Christians are to have a very firm core and very soft edges. Most of the time when when people experience the church, they either experience reverence without gentleness or they experience gentleness without reverence. Now, there are a lot of churches out there, and in those churches, they have a very firm idea of what God's rule, God's law, God's sovereignty, God's word means, and yet they're very mean about it. Or on the other extreme, you might have a church that has a high degree of God's kindness and compassion and mercy, and yet they have no clear understanding of what right and wrong and what God's will is for their lives. How do you live out both of those things? It's a dynamic tension, and it's one of my favorite things about Peachtree, that we hold to the gentleness of Christ and to the reverence, and we're not willing to sacrifice one for the other. There's a true story that is often told that's near and dear to my heart. Many of you probably have heard it. It was a story of a Baptist preacher by the name of Tony Campolo who was asked to speak um, in this location right here um, in Honolulu, Hawaii. And there are certain speaking engagements that you don't even have to pray about about whether or not you're called to do it. You just say yes because you know that that must be God's will because it's winter time and you get to go to a place like that. And at the time, Tony lived in Pennsylvania. And so he hopped on a long plane ride, made his way out to Honolulu. And if you've ever done that trek, you know that there is at that time of year a six-hour time difference between Eastern Standard Time and the time zone that Hawaii is in and, uh, and that that can really mess up your, your clock. That that you can go to bed, and like Tony did, he woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning. His body was saying it's 9 o'clock in the morning. He was absolutely not able to go back to sleep, and he was famished. And so he got up, he put on some clothes, he went downstairs to try to get something to eat, and when he went downstairs, nothing in the hotel was open. There was no food available. So he starts wandering around the streets of Honolulu looking for any place that might be open until he finds some greasy spoon of a diner that's open 24 hours. He opens the door. He almost turns around and walks back out because it's so disgusting on the inside, but he's really hungry. And so he goes in, he sits at the counter, he orders a cup of coffee. In a weaker moment, he also orders a donut as well. There's a guy behind the counter by the name of Harry, and Tony tells the story so well where he talks about when he ordered the donut, Harry literally did this with his hand on his apron, pulled open the jar, reached in, grabbed a donut, and handed it to Tony, not even with like a napkin. He almost felt like he shouldn't eat it, but he felt like that he should because he was hungry. So there he is eating his donut, drinking his coffee when the little chime on the door opens and about eight or nine boisterous, 
prostitutes walk into the diner. This sounds like the beginning of a setup of a joke, doesn't it? There's a Baptist preacher in a 24-hour diner at 3 o'clock in the morning in Honolulu when eight or nine prostitutes walk in. And so Tony's there. They don't know who he is at all. He's minding his own business. He is just eating his donut and is drinking his coffee. And, but he can't help but overhearing them. And there's a woman who is close to him. Her name is Agnes. And the other people are teasing her because tomorrow is her 39th birthday. And they're teasing her. And she's like, be quiet. Leave me alone. And, and it, in the conversation, Tony overhears that she's never had a birthday party before. They leave, and a little idea gets lodged in Tony's head. So he turns to Harry, and he says, Harry, do they come in here every night? And Harry says, yeah, like clockwork. And he says, what do you think about us throwing a birthday party for Agnes? Harry calls his wife out of the kitchen. They start laughing that there's this crazy guy um, who, from the mainland who wants to throw a birthday party for Agnes. And they're like, sure, let's throw a birthday party. And so Tony says, I'll take care of the decorations. I'll take care of the cake. Can you just clean up the place a little more than usual? And Harry's wife starts laughing because, yes, that's Harry's responsibility, and it doesn't do it very well. And sure enough, the next night, Tony shows up with the decorations, with the birthday cake. The place looks a whole lot cleaner. Word has gotten out that there's this surprise birthday party for Agnes, and so the place is packed. And when Agnes opens the door and sees the big marquee that says, Happy Birthday, Agnes, and they start to sing to her and clap to her, her knees buckle. They're walking towards her with the cake that have the candles on them. And she can barely stand. And the tears start to flow from her eyes and run down her cheeks. Harry, who isn't schooled in the art of sensitivity, says, Agnes, hurry up, blow out the candles. We want some of the cake. And she said, do I have to? Harry's like, it's kind of customary. That's how we get to share in it. And she's like, can you just, can you give me a few minutes? She didn't want the moment to stop. She asked, with strange request, permission to take the cake. And she wanted to take it home to some close friends and some family. Because she said, they won't believe it if I don't tell them. And so you have this moment where she takes the cake, she leaves. Have you ever been to a birthday party where the guest of honor shows up, takes the birthday cake on the run? And so there's this awkward pause once she leaves of kind of like, well, what do we do now? And so Tony grabs two hands of the people next to him and says, why don't you say we pray? And he bows his head and he starts praying. And he prays for Agnes. He prays for her heart for God, that she would come to know God, that this community would be changed because of the love of God, that we all belong to him. He prays this prayer over her. And as soon as he's done, as soon as he says amen, Harry goes, hey, you never told me you were a preacher. Tony's like, you didn't ask. And then Harry goes, what kind of crazy church do you come from? And in a stroke of genius, Tony Campolo said, the kind of church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at three o'clock in the morning. And then Harry says, no way. 
No way you come from a church like that. Because if there was a church like that, I'd be a part of it. I'd belong to that kind of church. I'd join that kind of church. And so the question is, are we that kind of church? Are we a church that holds, neither do I condemn you and go and sin no more together as one? Do we cling to the whole gospel, a gospel that doesn't condone the behavior and yet at the same time doesn't condemn the person? Are we the kind of church that knows that it's God's kindness that leads to repentance and not the other way around? That God's truth and God's grace are always held together and that God always gets the order right. Are we that kind of church? That's more than just a story for me. The reason that story is important is because Tony Campolo was a professor at Eastern University at that time. And Tony Campolo took, as a Christian sociologist and Baptist preacher, took introduction to sociology from a professor at what was then Eastern Baptist University. And the person who taught him that introduction class that became his livelihood was a man by the name of Al Conwisher, who happens to be my grandfather. The gospel is something that is passed on from generation to generation. It is full of both grace and truth. And the one thing I don't want you to miss before we come to the table right now is that in John chapter 8, which comes right after John chapter 7, in case you missed that earlier today, John chapter 8 begins with a group of people wanting to stone this woman. John chapter 8 ends with them wanting to stone Jesus, it says this in John 8:59. At this, they picked up the stones to stone him. So let me be abundantly clear. Gentle reverence is not a PR strategy. It is not a good technique to help people to like you. Holding grace and truth together, living a life of gentle reverence, it's what made them want to kill him. They couldn't put him in a box. They couldn't shove him into a particular camp. And so they wanted to get him out of the way. Living with gentle reverence can be a dangerous thing. And so let us pray. God, as we come to the table now, fill us with your encouragement and your hope to hold these things together that don't often go together. 
and also help us to get this order right, God. That there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Thank you for your kindness, God, that unlocks repentance. We thank you that you love us and also that you empower us to change. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said.